welcome to the 2018 6th Annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, from mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Bank-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, December 6th. 2018 at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this lecture podcast, Andre McKay presents Examining the Role of Menstrual Irregularity on Physical and Emotional Functioning in the Moderate-Severe Traumatic Brain Injury Population. Dr. McKay is an assistant professor, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. For more information about Dr. McKay, check out her online bio by clicking on the link within this podcast description. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Uh, Next speaker will be Dr. Andrea McKay who is a very homegrown New Jersey person. She completed her medical school education training at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, and then completed her uh, residency training in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Rutgers University (laughs) New Jersey Medical School, and then stayed on to complete a brain injury fellowship here at Kessler. Um, And she is now working as an attending physician at University Hospital, part of the Rutgers University New Jersey Medical School system. And uh, Dr. McKay will be presenting on examining the role of menstrual irregularity on physical and emotional functioning in the moderate to severe traumatic brain injury population. Good evening, everybody. I'm happy to be here to talk about something that's interesting to me and hopefully slightly interesting to you. Um, So I know Dr. Brooks gave me the introduction. It was quite a mouthful, but for the short of the story, I've been here for quite a while. Um, And I obviously like it so much, I'm not going anywhere yet. Um, So I did my traumatic brain injury fellowship here and I'm now working at University Hospital where I do some neurotrauma consults um, in addition to other kinds of patients. Um, But obviously traumatic brain injury is very near and dear to my heart. This is a very specific title, so we're going to broaden it up a little and really kind of look at some sex differences in traumatic brain injury. Um, And then I will tell you a little bit about our research study that I participated in um, and kind of some of the interesting findings that I found. Um, I have no disclosures, no conflicts of interest or anything like that. Um, So we will just jump right in because we have a lot to talk about today. So to give you a little outline, uh, we're going to go, you know, we're going to backtrack, kind of talk about traumatic brain injury in general, and then we'll get a little bit more specific and talk about some of the sex differences within traumatic brain injury. So this is probably a review for some of you guys, but just to go through the numbers briefly. um, So some of these numbers are a little bit older. It's still the same trends, uh, but it's just traumatic brain injury continues to be more common every year. So more people are having these injuries. But still, in terms of men versus women, the trends are overall the same. Um, In terms of the most common reason for a brain injury in the United States, it's falls. 
Uh, the number two and number three spots have been moving around a lot, but uh, being struck by or against an object is the number two most common reason, and number three is motor vehicle accidents. When you look at the entire world, motor vehicle accidents is the most common reason for a traumatic brain injury. Um, what we see, and most people know, is that it's just more common in men. Um, and when you look at severity of injury, when you kind of break it down to mild, moderate, severe, men are more likely to have moderate to severe injuries, and that's thought to be for a couple of reasons. I don't know if it's true or not, but um, people say that men engage in more high-risk activities, they may have more high-risk behaviors, and may have jobs that predispose them to sustaining an injury. Um, in terms of who is getting these injuries, so in our very young and our very old, those are typically the people that are falling. We see the highest rates of fall. And when you look at the older population, um, men and women, in, t in terms of how common it is, um, it's, the numbers kind of even out in, with men and women. And some people think maybe older women are more mobile, they're gonna be more active, so the rates are about the same in men and women, or they're pretty close to similar. Um, so despite these like trends in men versus women with traumatic brain injury, we really, when you look at research studies, very rarely do people examine the difference between men versus women. So only about 7% of 200 studies really show a, like any type of sex stratification. So like what's happening in men versus women. So I think that just looking at the numbers, it's obvious that there are some differences in men and women, but we really don't know um, why that's happening, and does that mean that they experience brain injury differently? We just know that the rates are different, and it happens to men versus women differently. So when I was talking about severity of brain injury, so looking at your mild, moderate, severe, um, mild brain injury is overall the most common. And concussion, we kind of throw into mild brain injury as well. It's um, usually just kind of lumped together. Um, and because of that, uh, most of the information about like my, uh, women and brain injury is in that mild population because it's just more common in them as well. Because um, we said before, men are going to be the people who are supposedly doing more high-risk things. They're getting more severe injuries. Um, a lot of times, like since concussion and sports have been more like popular and a big topic of discussion after the movie came out and all those other things. Um, sports and concussion is where most of the research is done, and that could be because you have all these people in an organized setting, a lot of people to study all at once, and relatively healthy people to study all at once. Uh, so most of what we know about women with brain injury is really in that mild brain injury population. So let's jump into what do we know so far? So in women, what we see in terms of sports and their risk is that they seem to be at highest risk with soccer. Um, and for men, it's football, we all kind of know that. And when they compare like men and women in similar sports, so men and women in, hockey, or in soccer, men and women in basketball, for some reason, girls seem to just get more concussions. We know that for sure, they're not necessarily sure why, but they're getting more of them. They also seem to have more time lost from playing because of that. And then when we talk about post-concussion syndrome, which a lot of people know is, it's kind of vaguely described by most people, but really those symptoms of like headache, fatigue, feeling slowed down, for some reason girls seem to have more of those symptoms as well. Um, and initially, when I kind of see this symptom list, it makes me think of some hormonal changes that can you know, occur with women a lot of times. And so 
people started to look more into things like hormonal changes and menstrual cycles and how this all plays into these post-concussion syndromes. Um, so we know that amenorrhea occurs in female athletes. If you're in an activity that requires you to be more lean, so our ballerinas and things like that, um, it can be as high as 70% of people who are in these activities who at some point experience a loss of their period or amenorrhea. For the general population, so if you just like to work out a lot and you aren't necessarily an athlete, it can still occur anywhere from 2 to 5% of the time. So these are uh, very similar studies that are all kind of saying the same thing. It's for some reason, girls are doing a little bit worse when it comes to concussions. Um, they, despite being compared to their male counterparts, they always seem to get more, have a higher rate of it, take a little bit longer to recover and just have more symptoms. And in one study, it was even found that it might take them twice as long to come back from a concussion than their male counterparts. Um, so I think that the, most of the data is kind of pointing in one direction. However, um, in doing some more literature review, I even found that some authors had conflicting statements where they said, sometimes I think the girls do worse, sometimes they do better, um, which seems like everything's pointing towards one direction, but that may not necessarily be the case. And one of the theories behind that is in animal studies, they have shown that estrogen and progesterone, which are at higher levels in women, might be protective to the brain. And so maybe depending on where a woman is in her menstrual cycle and other things, maybe that's why she did a little bit better in concussions and after a concussion and with some of these studies. So I think you can pretty much say that there's not necessarily a clear picture, but most of the data is kind of pushing in one direction where women seem to do a little bit worse. And we're gonna kind of talk about some of the theories about why. So right now, uh, there's kind of three main theories. There's definitely more than three, but these are the three main ones. Uh, so first, like physical differences. If you have a female basketball player and a male basketball player, the assumption is that the male basketball player has more muscle mass, is going to be larger, could take a hit a little bit, um, and would recover faster than a female would. Um, the second theory is kind of the neuroanatomical differences. So is the structure of our brain actually different? And is that why we are recovering differently? And then the third, which I think is kind of one of the more logical ones, is the hormonal differences. So does hormone levels have any impact on how we recover and how we experience a traumatic brain injury? So we're going to talk a little bit about all of these, and then I'll kind of get into my interest in a small study that I conducted. So if anyone's an NFL fan, they may or may not know this man, um, but his name's Takeo Spikes. Um, he's now retired, but was probably most famous for being on the 49ers, and he's a linebacker. And he has the distinction of his neck having a 22-inch circumference, which is pretty impressive. Um, so I don't know if anybody in their spare time Googles concussion and neck strength, but if you do, pictures of him pop up everywhere because he does talk about neck strengthening and concussion a lot. And a lot of times when people bring this up, they always show pictures of him um, because he apparently is one of the most jacked linebackers ever in the NFL. That's a title he gave himself, but I think most people <laughs> may agree with him. <laughs> so, so there have been studies um, that have shown that neck strengthening actually does decrease your risk of concussion. So a lot of athletic trainers um, will kind of focus on that and add this into um, training their athletes. 
Um, and so, uh, like if you, I mean, it's supposed to be kind of pure physics, looking at these two individuals on the screen. If one of them got a hit, like he has a wider base neck, it can absorb more force and shouldn't cause as much of that rotational force that can happen after an injury and cause some stretching of the axons. So it's believed to be kind of helpful and somewhat protective. Um, despite him having this huge neck, he still had concussions when he was in the NFL. So it's not foolproof. It's just supposed to be an added layer of protection. So when we look at the neuroanatomical differences, so is the structure of our brain actually different? These are some really cool studies that came out um, recently. Uh, so they actually grew human and animal cells in vitro and then studied them. And then they figured out a way through a computer model to cause them to undergo some stretch injury and then restudy them. So once they first grew the cells, they looked at them. The picture is small, so I apologize, but on the far left is supposed to be a female axon, and then next to that is the male axon. So what they saw is that the female axon was actually smaller and had less of those cross-linkings, which made it more susceptible to injury. Um, and then when they looked at it after, the after uh, they exposed it to a traumatic brain injury in their computer model, um, they saw that it had more swellings, it was more dysfunctional, and the signaling was just all off. So it could be possible, like, this is why the way that we experience and recover is a little bit different, just because, I mean, this is an ideal model. They didn't study actual people, but maybe female axons are actually smaller and just a little bit weaker. Um, similarly, this other study, they looked, this was just in animals, but they looked at the kind of post-injury, how did the cells respond? And they saw that in the male mice, the response was a little bit more aggressive. So maybe that's why men recover faster, is because their body's working really hard to repair the cells after the damage. And so that could be another reason why. Um, so we kind of talked about the physical differences, the size differences, and then the brain structure and how that could be a possibility. And lastly, we're gonna talk about the hormones and kind of where my interest lied was really in the hormonal differences. Um, so this was another interesting study. So recently, um, people have been kind of looking at biomarkers and concussion and screening, um, and a study came out kind of looking at those things. But with those patients, they also collected hormonal data um, to see if that had any impact on their recovery, as well as looking at the biomarkers and things like that, too. Um, so in this study... So we talked briefly before about progesterone and how in animal studies it could be protective to the brain and protective to injury. There was a clinical trial that had been done where people were administered progesterone after an injury to see if it helped their outcomes, but they didn't see any benefit, so that's not a recommendation. Um, but the theory was that that was because it was exogenously administered, so it wasn't our own body's progesterone. So maybe it's actually our own body's progesterone that's protective and not somebody just giving it to you. So this theory was uh, that if somebody sustained a brain injury um, within the luteal phase of their menstrual cycle, where the progesterone levels are very high, so hopefully you guys can all see that, that they would uh, then experience an abrupt withdrawal um, of the progesterone and then have worse symptoms because they think the progesterone is actually what's kind of helping your brain. And so what they did actually find was that there was something to that. 
Um, so those women who experienced a concussion in the luteal phase of their menstrual cycle did report worse symptoms and worse quality of life. Um, they did look at other variables like neuropsychiatric testing and things like that, but those were all very similar. The biggest difference that they noticed was in the symptoms and quality of life. So similarly, this was another study uh, done by Ripley. So hormones and hormone levels are very hard to study. Um, so they looked at it a little bit differently, where it was really just questions, and they kind of asked women pre and post injury, how did your menstrual cycle change? And then they looked at how they did, how severe their injury was. They did uh, want to kind of look at every severity of injury, so mild, moderate, severe. Most of the patients ended up being mild in this study. Um, and they did, were able to find some relation between the severity of their injury and um, the length of amenorrhea or lack of period and also outcomes. So of course the duration of amenorrhea, meaning a shorter duration, was predictive of better outcomes. So I really was kind of, uh, my interest was piqued with these last two studies. Um, and I wanted to take a look at it a little bit further. Um, so we know that amenorrhea and kind of lack of period and hormonal changes occur after a brain injury because your brain really controls the release of all those hormones. And it's known that the pituitary gland, which controls that, is injured a lot of times, especially in our moderate to severe patients. Um, and not many people examine them for many reasons. Uh, so I kind of wanted to dig deeper into the hormonal like, idea, but really looking more at the moderate to severe patients because we know that it's happening to them, but what does that mean for their outcomes? So now I'm going to get more specific and talk about um, my study that I did. It was a very small study, but I do think that I got some interesting information from it. So my, the objectives of my study was really just to gather some preliminary data and see what the issues were in this patient population. So like women in brain injury already is like a small percentage of it, but then young women, um, again, another small percentage and see you know, what that meant for their reproductive health. Uh, so I wanted to look at, because it's again hard to collect hormonal data, um, I just wanted to kind of ask them about their menstrual cycle and their reproductive health and, and look at how that may have impacted their functional recovery, their mood, because hormonal changes can affect mood and participation in life activities. My hypotheses were that those with more severe injury would of course have greater irregularity and the longer duration of amenorrhea would have worse outcomes, similar to that other study. I wanted to confirm if that was the case and then take it a little bit further and just kind of look at more of the participation with life and how this was affecting them on an everyday. So inclusion criteria were things that made sense for the study. Um, I had only wanted to take women that were up to four years post-injury to take away some of the recall bias. I wanted them to remember kind of before their injury how their menstrual cycle was and post-injury the changes. So I thought if it was longer than four years, they probably wouldn't be able to remember those things. Uh, the age of menopause in North America, the average age is about 51. So we stopped it at 50, the enrollment. Um, and obviously premenopausal. Um, and for the severity of injury, again, I wanted just moderate to severe, 
but I used a different criteria to kind of figure out, to make it more specific, because we could just lump everyone to moderate to severe, but we used the Mississippi criteria because it looks at one-year outcomes, um, and it's supposed to be more predictive of one-year outcomes, so it's even more specific than your typical um, characterization. For our outcome measures, I already kind of briefly talked about what I was interested in learning more about, but I know these are just letters on a page, so to kind of explain a little bit more about them. So the GAD is a screening measure for anxiety, which you would assume would, would kind of accompany some hormonal changes. The PHQ-9 is another screening measure for depression, um, and the numbers stand for how many questions are part of the screening tool. So we were trying to keep everything short. So seven questions to kind of screen for anxiety, nine questions for depression. And the part O is a tool that it's a, more, a lot more questions. I think it's about 30 questions. And it asks really participation in life activities. So about personal relationships. Do they go shopping? Do they go to the movies? Is religion important to them? So for the physical uh, measures, it's things that I think people are probably pretty familiar with. So the FIM, um, where you want a higher score, meaning that they're more functional, and the DRS, where a lower score means less disability. Uh, I myself created the survey questions um, for the patients, and I used some CDC resources, and I also worked with a reproductive health specialist to try to really tease out things that were going to be important to understand hormonal changes in reproductive health. Um, I tried to keep it short, but that's really impossible. You're really trying to learn more about somebody's health history. So despite my best efforts to keep it around like 30 questions, it ended up around 70 questions. Um, and it took about an hour to complete. The entire survey was done in one encounter, and I myself did all of the interviews so that um, it, it would remain consistent. Um, I also had like options for all of the questions, but I also really was diligent in recording everything that the patient said so that I could pick out if there were any trends just during the interview process. And I think that's where most of my valuable information really came from. So was, these are preliminary findings. It was a very small study, but still very important. And I think I still learned a lot about this topic. Um, and it really fits into the theme of the next two days in terms of individualized neuro rehab. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, but my goal was to get around 30 patients, because that's how many were in the previous studies and I wanted to compare. But I got around eight. Um, but that just gives me more time to kind of tell you a little bit about each patient. <laughs> So these are my patients um, that I interviewed. So I know that it's small, uh, so I'll just kind of go through each column and tell you a little bit about each one. So we had eight patients. Looking at the age, our group was pretty young. The average age was 26 for our patients. Um, again, with the severity, we used a more specific criteria, so you will see some places extremely severe. Um, and our extremely severe patients were people that at some point had a disorder of consciousness, so whether that be coma, minimally conscious, um, something like that. For, in terms of days post-injury, we had as little as 88, and all the way up to about the four-year mark, which was our cutoff. Um, with mechanism of injury, we aren't really following with the U.S. trends. Um, so motor vehicle accidents were the most common, and then fall, the second most common. Um, and pedestrian struck was just one person, um, whereas in the U.S., fall is the most common. 
In terms of our imaging findings, there was a wide range of imaging findings. There wasn't necessarily any trends there. For BMI, we had included it because um, BMI can affect hormonal levels, and we also just wanted to give a, a clear picture of um, like what they look like as well. So then we asked them more about their menstrual cycle and how it was affected by their injury. So I think it's pretty interesting that every single patient, except for one of them, experienced a stopping of her menstrual cycle after her brain injury, um, which is something that they were all very concerned about but didn't feel like other people were. Um, so it was very interesting to hear more of what they had to say, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, so looking at my one patient who did not experience the stopping of her menstrual cycle, interestingly, she had a hormonal IUD placed about two weeks before her injury for a regular cycle, and so she never experienced any change and actually said it was lighter and shorter, which she attributed to the IUD. Um, for the length of amenorrhea, it kind of fit with the severity of injury. So our extremely severe patients had the longest length of amenorrhea, where they were all 6 to 12 months. The other person who had the shortest, so besides our patient who had no change, patient three had a very short length of amenorrhea, and she actually restarted birth controls while she was in rehab because she was concerned that she had not received her menstrual cycle yet. Um, and once she restarted them, then it normalized. Um, and then we also looked at the change. So we saw, like, on average, um, like, a, I believe it was around two-day change, was what most people reported, which is pretty significant if your menstrual cycle lasts about a week. Having a two-day change is significant to them. So when we compared everything, looking at um, kind of the length of the amenorrhea, the severity, and the functional outcomes and the mood outcomes, um, the biggest trends we saw was with the functional outcomes. So our two young ladies who had um, the shortest length of amenorrhea performed the best on functional measures. Um, and so maybe, like again, it kind of fits with that other study. Um, they also were both receiving like hormonal supplementation. So it could be possible that this hormonal supplementation does have an impact on the outcomes um, and could be something that's beneficial uh, to patients. When we um, looked at kind of the more severe patients and the functional outcomes, Overall, they kind of fit with the trend, too, where they seem to do poorly um, on the functional outcome measures or uh, perform less um, rigorously as the other patients. When we looked at the mood measures, um, those were interesting, more in talking to the patients than actually kind of what showed up in the chart. And in talking to them, there was just a wide range of responses um, some people were very anxious regarding their injury and the changes that it meant for their life, um, and also like reproductive health and gender identity and all those things that were kind of being brought up with some of the questioning, but also things they were just thinking about. And other people um, reported almost no mood symptoms because they had this idea of just being happy that they had survived. So they were trying to think positively and weren't really concerned about, um, didn't really think that they were ever anxious or depressed and try not to think that way. When we looked at participation with life activities, it kind of fit similar to the mood symptoms, those who reported being more anxious, um, more depressed, they just did less things in the community, um, whereas those who had less of those symptoms did more. Uh, but there wasn't necessarily trends 
in the severity of injury and amenorrhea and the mood and, um, and participation with life activities. The biggest correlation we saw was really with function. So to summarize some of those a little bit, um, we did, as I said before, kind of see the more severe injury had a greater change in the cycle um, and also seemed to have lower FIM scores. Um, those who had less change, a shorter length of amenorrhea did better in terms of functional measures. Um, we did have two that were ex um, receiving hormonal replacement therapy with birth control and a hormonal IUD, um, those two that had did really well. Um, and one patient still had not received her menstrual cycle 10 months after injury. So the definition of menopause is one year without your menstrual cycle. So she, despite being in her 30s, she's very close to being in early menopause. Um, so that was another thing that was very upsetting for her. But what I found to be kind of um, more telling and uh, more interesting, um, it was all very interesting, but some of the things that I learned that I was surprised about were that only one in eight of them had visited a reproductive health specialist um, for any type of screening since the accident, despite all of them being childbearing age, and about half of them either wanting to have children or um, soon or within the future. Um, so you would think that's something that they would consider doing. Three of the patients endorse significant anxiety and fear regarding their reproductive health, childbearing ability, and child care abilities. About half of them also had children. Um, so that was another thing that came up, which we'll talk a little bit more about too. So as I said before, when I was interviewing them, I was very diligent about writing things down because I knew that I'm sure um, very important and interesting things would come up in the interview process. Um, so these are direct quotes from some of the patients and really variations of these questions kind of came up with every single one of them because I spent a significant amount of time with them asking them very personal questions. Um, so one person said, will I be able to have children? Um, and she was actually concerned because she hadn't had her menstrual cycle for such a long time. She really didn't think it was possible. Despite her wanting to have children, she just figured she couldn't. Um, another patient said, can I take care of children with a brain injury? She did have one child, but felt like after her brain injury, she lost her independence. Her husband didn't feel comfortable leaving her alone with her children, despite her feeling that she was independent enough to take care of them. Um, and she just felt like um, it made her doubt herself. So that was a significant area that was causing her anxiety and depression and, give, and causing her to be uh, more doubting of herself because she felt like everyone else was doubting her too. Um, and one patient said, I don't go to see my OBGYN because I'm worried they will give me bad news. Um, and that was really sad. And as somebody who, you know, these patients, a lot of them wanted to have children, um, but she felt like, again, because she hadn't had her menstrual cycle for such a long time, does that mean that she won't be able to, and was just avoiding having that conversation. So never really um, was able to seek out the answer to any of these questions. So another uh, patient said, I'm glad you're asking me this because no one ever has, and I have so many questions. Uh, so these were the questions below were things that kind of came up in my mind. Does this mean that 
a young woman who sustains a brain injury, is she going to be less likely to obtain routine screening exams such as pap smear? Is there a lack of education by providers? So are we failing the patients by not even asking the question? Maybe they don't feel comfortable. A lot of them didn't feel comfortable. They thought it wasn't important. Um, they have to focus on the medical issues first and focus on other things. So it was kind of in the back burner, but still something that was causing them anxiety. And really, what role does brain injury play in terms of their gender identity and their personal relationships? So at least in two of them that I interviewed, it was causing strain in their marriage, um, the lack of independence and, and kind of the relationship and other things that I think we do get psychology and psychiatry involved a lot of times in the rehab setting, but maybe even just asking the question to see if it's something that they want to discuss is important. So in terms of this small study that I took part in, um, there is plenty of limitations. Our small sample size, our group was overall kind of homogenous. They were very similar. Um, and most of them were done in person. Some were done in telephone. It was hard to remember some things. Uh, but I still think that we were able to gain some valuable information in how the patients felt. So really, to summarize what we learned with this study is that it's possible that these menstrual irregularity and these hormonal changes can have some cognitive and physical side effects that impact recovery, um, but it's treatable. And who knows, maybe the hormonal replacement therapy could make a difference. It's not saying that you have to do it for everyone, but it's a possibility, because it did in this patient population that we had, or this patient group that we had. So that was a lot of information. Um, but really, like, what does it all mean? So there are guidelines when it comes to uh, screening and hormonal replacement therapy, but the guidelines, if you actually read them, are very general. Um, I don't think anybody is really being too specific, um, but they say, like, we know that with brain injury, you can have injury to your pituitary gland, and we know that can affect your hormones. So if you think someone has symptoms, you should screen for it and... Um, possibly think about hormonal replacement therapies. Um, we do, they also recommend like, if it's appropriate getting an endocrinologist involved and other things like that. I mean, a lot of brain injury doctors and other doctors do hormonal screenings because we know that this occurs. Um, so it's really kind of up to the provider and how they feel about it, but it's just something to think about. So again, kind of fitting with the theme of individual rehab, um, the whole goal of this like, research study and really the talk was just to make people aware that there could be differences in how men and women experience traumatic brain injury and also how they recover from it. Um, so just knowing that that occurs, knowing to look for the symptoms and knowing to ask the right questions um, and really figure out what each patient is feeling, what's important for them in their recovery and for young women who experience traumatic brain injury to, you know, at some point have the conversation about reproductive health, um, whether you feel comfortable doing it or telling, referring them to somebody that does. But it did really kind of stick with me. Um, and talking to these patients, it really moved me, hearing some of their stories and how they didn't feel that people were listening to them and how important it was for them to have a family one day, but it wasn't important to other people, um, and being scared to even ask the question because they weren't sure what the answer was going to be. Thank you. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, 
or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.